Welcome back to Humans of Purpose. I'm your host, Mike Davis, and each week I bring you conversations with local purpose-driven leaders. Leaders creating social impact through their work and inspiring positive social change across a wide variety of sectors. Sit back, tune in, and enjoy the next 40 minutes guaranteed to inspire you with our signature blend of wisdom, experience, and banter. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. So after the sort of more exploratory sessions, mm-hmm. we really go into, um, as you mentioned, the exposure mm-hmm. and the training. Yep. Whatever people's personal goal is, we'll work to that quite rigidly. Um, and that's the good thing about VR. It's, you can just repeat any exercises. You can increase the, the levels of difficulty in that. Um, and then after that, we want to see, and it's something we, we measured at baseline as well, does this translate to real life? Yes. And do people, if they do these virtual exercises, does it help them in real life? Welcome back to another action-packed episode of Humans of Purpose. First off, a big thank you to our major sponsor, Neon Treehouse. We're very grateful for your ongoing support. Our latest podcast partner is New Recover. I discovered New Recover recently when I was looking to add the benefits of cold water plunging into my weekly well-being routine. Having tried the cold shower, I found this very unpleasant and ineffective, and I was amazed to find a solution that is very reasonably priced at less than $150. It takes less than three minutes to assemble and is also entirely portable. The benefits of cold water plunging are many, but for me it's the feeling of mindfulness and presence that only being utterly freezing for a few minutes each day can bring. Doing so each morning will make just about everything else you do that day also seem far easier by comparison. To get your portable ice bath or any new Recover products, just head to their website and use the link in our show notes at checkout to get 15% off their entire product range. This week, I'm thrilled to bring you my conversation with Rose Potcolder. Rose is a postdoctoral research fellow and psychologist at Origin and the University of Melbourne. At Origin, she's a member of Origin Digital's virtual reality research team, where she's running a fascinating research program aimed at helping young people improve their mental health. I discovered Rose's innovative work in an Age article published in January and was excited to connect with her to learn more about how virtual reality and emerging technologies can help young people experiencing poor mental health to navigate challenging and stressful life situations. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Rose as much as I did. Well, I am absolutely thrilled on this um, relatively chilly Monday morning to welcome Rose to the studio. Welcome, Rose. Hi, good to be here. I'm really sorry about mispronouncing your name earlier. I still feel a bit, a bit embarrassed about that. No worries. So Australian to pronounce it as Ruse. <laughs> We're very literal here in Australia, aren't we? Yeah, and I think it reminds people of the kangaroos, the way it's spelled. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, that did excite me too. But what I'm much more excited about is your incredible pioneering research in VR for young people with um, lived experience and mental health issues. So I can't wait to get into that. But um, before we do so, perhaps if you can just take us in typical Humans of Purpose style into your journey and how you found yourself in this really incredible space of research and um, dynamic uh, progression in the field. It was quite by accident, actually, that I turned into virtuality therapies in that field. I was working as a psychologist for people with depression and anxiety and also a first episode of psychosis. And I started working at the University of Amsterdam because I was also interested in doing research, research. And one of the therapies that I was doing there as a clinician was virtual reality for social anxiety. And this was the first time I'd ever even heard of virtual reality as a therapy form. This was about 12 years ago. So you can imagine it looks quite a lot um, 
worse than it uh, it does at the moment. The headsets were hand built. They were about thirty thousand dollar per piece. They were horrible, not comfortable. <laughs> Um, and I was pretty skeptical before I started it. Uh, there was one condition where we would do the virtuality therapy for social anxiety and one condition where we would go outside with people practicing real life. And before I expected and I was hoping for the clients to be randomized into the, the real life condition, and I changed during, during the therapies, during the, me doing the trial. And at some point I found myself wondering, oh, I hope this client gets randomized to the virtuality trial. Because it was, as a therapist, you have so much more control over the environment. So we would be running outside uh, looking for uh, appropriate social situations. While in the virtuality lab, I could just control the situation. And it was a safe space. It was a safe space we could talk about what people were thinking, what people were feeling, what things would come up. And it would gain so much more insight for the clients as well. While in real life, I could maybe say how high, and they would say seven, and we were talking about anxiety. So I found myself very interested in the subject. And because of my background in early psychosis, um, I saw a lot of clients with paranoid anxiety, which is actually quite similar in a way of treatment, in the form of treatment, as we would treat people with social anxiety. So we would, both forms, use cognitive behavioral therapies. And I thought we could, we could use this. Yeah, because people are, especially when they have paranoid anxiety, they're super scared. And even when they are not fully sure of their beliefs, so they might feel like people might be out to hurt them or they might even be out to kill them. And even if they say, Rose, I'm pretty not sure, 99% sure they won't kill me. But it's still like a scary step. You ever heard the expression, um, just because I'm paranoid doesn't mean that they're all out yes. to get me? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and sometimes the story would sort of be um, part of, uh, part of it would be in reality. Like yep. they would have issues maybe with a drug dealer, they would owe a little bit of money. And that, that thinking about that sort of got really out of hand and yeah. turned into a paranoid uh, thought. And the first step to go outside and go uh, be among people again, that would be so scary, even if they, they, they thought they would be safe, probably. That was a great dinner. So great. Wait, where'd you park the car? Oh, the one I just sold at Carvana. What? When did you do that? When you were still looking at the menu. I went on Carvana.com and all I had to do was enter the license plate or VIN, answer a few questions, and got a real offer in seconds. They picked up the car already? No, I parked around the corner. But they are picking it up tomorrow and paying me right on the spot. Oh, no wonder you picked up the check. Yeah, about that, uh... We we're going to have these. Sell your car to Carvana. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to get a real offer in seconds. And by making virtual reality the first step as a safe space with the clinician, it makes it so much more easier for people to stop avoiding social situations. So who comes up with this idea originally of using VR in this arena because it was so new at the time. I wonder what the thinking would have been around creating that virtual safe space to really be a great adjunct or kind of tool to to load up therapy to be more effective. Well, the interesting thing is there's already been done virtual reality research for about two to three decades. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, before, it was more about things like fear of heights and because you could use the old software to sort of program a feeling of height, of, of depth. Um, but at the time when we were starting, it was just about when the technology was ready to make actual virtual people. That is quite more complicated. Yep. And that was something they were starting to be able to do. Um, we still had to build the people. <laughs> 
Um, and like block sort of shapes. Like that well, from the technology. they were not great. <laughs> uh, I can get you some link to some video footage we have of it. it. It was not realistic. But the interesting thing was, and we did some research on that first before we started doing the therapies. Yeah. That uh, because we wanted to know if we create these environments, these social environments, do people actually feel paranoid? Do they get paranoid thoughts? Do they mm-hmm. get anxiety? So we tested that first with about 170 people, and um, we would make it very crowded, and we might people make eye contact with the clients. And we did find, indeed, that we also measured heart rate and, and sweat responses, all sorts of levels we measured how they were responding to it. And we did find that people were getting more paranoid thoughts if we make it more crowded, for example, or more hostile, and we would see their anxiety increase. So we knew these environments would elicit the symptoms we were hoping to treat. So the technology was ready and we were ready. So you were able to simulate environments that you wanted to test and that opens the the gateway to do much more robust and controlled trials. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. And I guess that's that's really the researcher's goldmine, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. It's such a controlled environment that you can do anything with it. Yeah. And so are there ethical sort of quandaries there around sort of like how, you know, obviously you want to test – and get the range right. So you don't also, also want to compromise um, some of the subject's health and well-being. So maybe, you know, if you overcrowd a space or mm. create too much of that noise, um, I suppose you're thinking about safety protocols there too. Absolutely, yeah. And this is why it's so important to have a personalized therapy because every time you, you know the client, you know what they're working on, you know their personal goals. Um, so we would always match to that. But even in the event of, for example, people having a more strongly response than they would have maybe anticipated, so they anticipate it would be a good exercise, but maybe it's a bit too strong for them. Well, that may happen in real life too. Yeah, so well. Yeah, exactly. So we would use that as a good example to practice, okay, how do you do self-care now? And how do you make sure you, because it can happen and it's all right. Having a panic attack, for example, it just means your anxiety is 10. It's not a good feeling, but it's harmless. Yeah. I have never personally experienced a panic attack, but I have been with people who have, and it looks um, terrible and reading accounts of people who have experienced panic attacks. It feels like you're dying. Yeah. Yeah, It really, you can see people, um, it's quite visceral. I won't describe it um, on the podcast, but it is very challenging. And I often wonder, you know, how must that feel? Um, so very important work that you're doing. Now, just a quick question off the cuff. A lot of this research had been done in your field with adults, but not with yep. young people. Yes. Why do you think that that had not been explored? And this really opened up a great opportunity for you also. I think for many countries, including the Netherlands, where I'm from, um, we, we have a bit of a, there's a division in the system. So we have a youth mental health system and there's an adult system. And it starts at 18 so a large part of that is just where we were doing our research, where we are doing our, um, our virtuality therapies. And there has been done virtuality therapy with mostly younger kids uh, around autism and ADHD and see how that could help with, with in- interventions. But if you look at the social recovery part, which is my field, it's really strange that we didn't include young adults because it's such an important phase of life for mm. social development. Mm. And at the same time, you see, this is a crucial, crucial moment where often mental ill health starts. So this is important social development phase. And then mental ill health starts to disrupt it. And my, my work with adults, many of them reported that uh, the symptoms they were experiencing often started uh, in, in their adult, mm. in their adolescence. And they just had been experiencing them for many decades even. So we wanted to bring that back to the youth 
population to the, to the stage where it's most effective probably to make the intervention when it just started, when they can so easily, more easily recover. And at the same time, we also see that uh, young people are much more digital natives. Technology and adapting to technology and using technology becomes so much more natural for them. Yes. Uh, it's, it's often for young people also much more appealing than just talking to a person about and their stuff. Yeah. So point of question on that, yeah. um, do you have to adjust the results to take into account young people's bias toward technology as, <laughs> as maybe sort of like a placebo-like effect? Well, that is why you do want to do the, like, the long randomized controlled studies yes. as well. Yeah. Uh, is this just a novelty that maybe gives a bit of distraction yes. for a short term? Uh, or is it actually something that helps them in real life? Yeah. And the, how we do that is by using ecological momentary assessment. Mm-hmm. It's a big word, but it usually just means an app on your phone mm. that on several times a day, just for one minute, asks you, who are you with? How are you feeling? What are your thoughts? Um, and that way we can see, and we did see that in, in big randomized control trials as well, that the work we do in the virtual reality, in the virtual social environment, it actually generalizes to real life social situations. Yep. Yeah. And so is there a different effect? Are you seeing it that it's more effective for young people than older people? Have you tested that? Or? No, we have not tested that in in because um, there weren't enough young people in, yep. the, in the bigger trials to yep. sort of analyze those results. We did have a look at it just for conferences. And what we did see was that they tended to um, continue to their recovery journey more. So maybe the adult population, they would recover. They would have less anxiety, less paranoid thoughts, better mm-hmm. social functioning. But as soon as the therapy stopped, they would sort of let uh, line on that. Yeah. And the young people just continue to build. I did. It showed such resilience. Yeah. And yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. And yeah. it's almost a bit like comparing apples and oranges. These are not yeah. the same. It's not the same type of experience because it sounds on one hand like young people, it's more an early intervention response. Absolutely. Uh, which can create much more downstream effects. And then with older people, you know, it's it's more sort of treatment maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what we expect as well. And that's why we're focusing on young people now. So yeah. that uh, hopefully we can prevent them from having these symptoms in 10, 20 years still. Yeah. So tell me how, in terms of the research question, yeah. let's start there and maybe then tell me a bit about the methodology and how you actually apply the VR um, headsets and to what sorts of problems. Yeah, sure. Uh, where do you want me to start? Maybe what's, yeah. what was the key research question that you wanted to set out to answer? Um, well, I, I'm... Working a bit of a bigger program, uh, how I want, what I want to work on and see is really in what ways, and there are so many ways to that, can I use these virtual reality therapies to improve social recovery? And I've been working with people with social anxiety, with agoraphobia, with paranoid anxiety. So the first step is just to, we've really been working with together with young people, which I think is a big part of research as well. Always work with the people you're working for. Mm-hmm. To see, okay, what do you need us to build? What do you want us to build? What environments, social environments are important for you? What interactions need to be in there for you to be helpful? So that's the first step we did. And then we, we built these environments. Now we're testing testing them. Um, and, and as a sort of a next step, we're also seeing, okay, we, we know from research that there are multiple ways in which people can experience problems as well. More like cognitive biases, there's... Challenges in the way people think. Um, some people suffer from hallucinations, which can be very distracting or distressing in social situations. Can we use virtual reality, reality as well in this way? Fantastic. And in terms of the methodology and how you actually do the testing or yeah. test your research hypothesis and yeah. the overall program, um, tell me a bit about that structure and also how the 
headsets are actually used and what you do with the headsets. Yeah. So the first step, of this, which is where we depart furthest along, is the REVIVE trial. And this is the, where we make this translation of these 20 years of adult research towards the younger generation. We talked with the young people, we made these adaptations, and we built these social environments. Um, and the f- next step is that we are going to um, trial the, the therapy, just in clinical settings. This is, that is where we want the virtual reality therapy to end up in clinician settings everywhere. It's very scalable. Um, yeah, oh, totally. I yeah. mean, cost-effective, scalable. Absolutely. Um, sort of fits the Web 3.0 place that we're at in society as well, I think, with you know, where everything's heading. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so that's that's where we are, we're going. We're going to the headspace with our virtual reality headset and giving the therapy in these environments. So you're putting people in different social settings yeah. and environments that are tailored towards their own maybe challenges exactly. or problems. Yeah. And then you're assessing really um, through that um, their responsiveness or their kind of yeah. how they react. Yeah, so the, how the therapy would work is just the first step is always just getting to know each other. Mm-hmm seeing what people's personal goals are, Mm -hmm. because that's why they're here. That's an important part of it, what we're working towards. And also then the next step is to see, okay, why are they not getting where they want to be? Sure. Why is the anxiety continuing? Why are the paranoid thoughts continuing? And these are often because of, for example, avoidance behaviors, uh, so they don't get corrective experiences of positive events, or it can be in situation avoidance behavior, like not looking at people Mm. or maybe not speaking as much or uh, short sentences. And we would, the, the second session, we would just, it's sort of a experiential session. And we would just go into environment, not maybe exposure levels yet, but just to see together what's happening. And this is the great thing about virtuality. You couldn't do that in real life. And we're just going to see, okay, so how does it feel like? Where do you feel your attention is drawn? So you're asking um, questions throughout this therapy. Yeah. Yep. yeah. So we're just really going to explore how does this work for you as a unique individual? And as a therapist, I, I do, uh, I can see what people are looking at. And so if they're, for example, avoiding eye contact, and I can see on the screen that uh, they're more looking at the virtual floor, for example. So you can track the eye movements yes. and direction. That's yeah. very, very interesting. Yeah. So yeah. we can, can look at that with them and see where that's going. Uh, and, I can, and I can be there as a therapist in the virtual environment, and I can also push a button and become one of the virtual people. Oh, that's incredible. Yeah. yeah. So you can actually step into the matrix and be yes. uh, Rose in session. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And when would you do that? Yeah. So, for example, if a person wants to, and these are their sort of small exercises yeah. we usually start with, things like ordering a coffee. I think very popular thing that came up in Melbourne for practice. And so, it's, it's probably the best and most common Melbourne social situation. Oh yeah, so it's a good good thing to practice. And, and we would go, uh, I would, for example, play role play, live role play the barista. Oh, really? Yeah. How fun. Do you like, are you good at being a virtual barista? <laughs> Luckily, I don't really have to do the, the actual work of the barista. I can just do the interaction. Yep. So I can ask them what they would like for coffee and I can, they would see me as a virtual avatar in this virtual cafe. Mm. And I can be a man or a woman or uh, anything they would feel uh, comfortable with practicing. Yep. And there's a voice distortion, so it's not my real voice. Um, and then I, for example, could practice that the cars get the client or that the, the, the order got wrong and they have to say something about that. Oh, wow. Yeah. How interesting. Yeah. So you're almost testing like stressful situations and how they would navigate them also. Yeah, I think there are two levels into yep. most anxiety therapies. Mm. And the first is practicing with what they call reality. And the reality is most people are nice. 
and most interactions will be fine, mm. neutral, even fun. Um, but what sometimes is good also to practice the things that are very unlikely to happen but what really scares people. Like, for example, um, that they drop something and people will call them crazy um, or that they will call them names uh, or say to them, you're very slow, you're way too slow with, with um, paying, for, paying for the coffee. Mm. Um, and then we can practice that as well as a bit of overexposure. Okay? Yeah, so I was quite interested yeah. by what you were saying because to me it sounds a bit like um, the immersive virtual environment lends itself to exposure therapy yes, as well as um, talk therapy too. Yeah. So which, which I believe is very effective for anxiety treatment because yes. a, a lot of the things that people might be anxious about, um, like most people would believe a very low probability things that happen, but yes. we obsess about them because we're, yes. we're scared. That's that, the anxiety yes, speaking. That's the anxiety exactly. speaking. Yeah, so that's extremely interesting. Yeah. That was a great dinner. So great. Wait, where'd you park the car? Oh, the one I just sold at Carvana. What? When did you do that? When you were still looking at the menu. I went on Carvana.com and all I had to do was enter the license plate or VIN, answer a few questions, and got a real offer in seconds. They picked up the car already? No, I parked around the corner. But they are picking it up tomorrow and paying me right on the spot. Oh, no wonder you picked up the check. Yeah, about that, uh... Thought we were going to have these. Sell your car to Carvana. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to get a real offer in seconds. And um, and so the VR environment, I'm guessing, gives you access to a whole array of digital uh, information, data, and analytics that you can process as a team or on your own. And um, that's quite different to other other forms of um, observational or interventional therapy. True, yeah. For this this first trial, we're just going to see, this is just a test yep. that we're, we're running. But long term, we do want to see if we can maybe make it more as a feedback mm -hmm. as well. So see, we can see what people find most useful mm -hmm. and we can build on that and expand on that. Or we can, something, for example, we can measure in VR, which we did some research on, is the distance um, people keep to the virtual people. Oh, wow. Uh, do, they, do they keep more distance? Yeah. Some groups maybe than other groups. And how does that work in VR? You can do things like eye tracking, combine it with, with uh, physiological measurements. Maybe so skin much. temperature to look yes. at anxiety response yeah. as well. Sweating as well, sweating, sweating response, heart yep. rate. Yeah. Um, so there's so much we can, we can learn from this. Yeah. And so what would the follow-up be like? Once you start to do it, so you've got a series of sessions that people would run through yeah. and then you're looking to evaluate sort of like pre and post anxiety in, in certain situations. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So after the sort of more exploratory sessions, mm -hmm. we really go into, um, as you mentioned, the exposure mm -hmm. and the training. Yeah. Whatever people's personal goal is, we'll work to that quite rigidly. Um, and that's the good thing about VR. It's, you can just repeat any exercises. You can increase the, the levels of difficulty in that um, and then after that, we want to see, and it's something we measured at baseline as well, does this translate to real life? Yes. Uh, do people, if they do these virtual exercises, does it help them in real life? And again, we use an app for that, the, the app with the momentary assessment to see if our therapy works in real life. So might you then compare the virtual barista coffee experience with an actual real life coffee experience? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a turnaround in the Netherlands by my old PhD supervisor, Wim Veling, that is comparing the, for the psychosis uh, treatment, he's comparing them, the, um, sort of the regular uh, intervention with the virtual intervention. And for us, for the next step, because we're 
preparing for a large randomized control trial as well, where we'll be building in some extra exercises to improve social cognition to see if we can improve the therapy. There were some um, yeah, the reasons to think that it might. And so we will compare the sort of version virtuality CBT 1.0 to the 2.0 version and see if we made it better. Oh, wow. So you're constantly enhancing the process and the tools as well. And so just on that note, I mean, I'd love for you to talk to me about how you involve young people. I know that's a big thing at Origin is sort of involving people with lived experience and best practice everywhere. But how do you do that? Yeah, it's actually one of the reasons I wanted to come to Origin when they invited me is because it's such a big um, space where there's such a big and lived experience involvement and expert involvement. And we know it just makes it better, more relevant, the therapies are more effective even. So for example, it, it will depend a bit on what we're trialing. With the um, first version, we already know it's, it's very much exposure-based. So we're just making the translation from adults to young people. So those were just a few workshops and individual sessions. For the large randomized controlled trial, um, these new interventions I mentioned about improving social cognition, I have no idea what they will look like yet. Because we will, we will co-produce them with a group of young people. Uh, we'll be opening uh, um, the possibility soon if anybody uh, would like to join that. But we're really going to co-produce the whole, the whole thing together with young people. Uh, we have also the luck that we have some amazing software engineers on the team. So just be working as a team. And talk to me about your setup at Origin. You, yeah. you were saying you have a team of 12? Yeah, That's our fantastic. virtual reality team, yeah. There's an entire virtual reality team There's an entire virtual reality team. Yeah. And is that AR as well or just VR? Or At the moment we're focusing on VR yep. because it really brings us um, the possibility of bringing the outside world or, or exercises into the therapy room. Yep. With my augmented reality might be very useful, very different things like yeah. um, showing people what it's like to have a psychotic experience, yes. for example. That's much more. There's some research on that in the Netherlands, some experiences. So there are different uh, options to each of these forms. And so is anyone else doing this kind of work in Australia? In Australia, no, not yet. No. And I mean, at this scale, that's quite yeah. an investment in VR. So yes. I, I take it that Origin must have a strong strategic and um, – belief that this is sort of the way forward, especially with young people. Absolutely. And we do we do get support from that, both from national and international funders. Yep. The Victoria State government, for example, mm-hmm. has really helped our work with making this research translation of existing work the, the, uh, into the, young, the younger generation. And for the other projects, for example, we have funding from uh, the USA or the UK on this. Yeah, And so ideally, I mean, this sort of fits in nicely, I guess, with the Andrews government, um, Victorian uh, Mental Health Royal Commission reforms and the youth mental health hubs and whatnot. So is this something that you see being rolled out sort of in, at hubs or where would the delivery, what kind of um, room or facilities would be required to do this and where, where do you see this rolling out? Yeah. So we want to make sure it gets implemented. So we sure. keep thinking from that focus with our clinicians on our team as well. I'm one of them. Uh, So we want to make sure that any psychologist, any therapist with just a normal therapy room can do this, that they get the headset. And how we do this is one, for example, the big trial uh, we'll be looking into that I just mentioned. Part of that will also be a training and implementation package. Virtuality is immensely scalable, so we want to make sure our training gets scalable as well. And we want to, to digitalize ourselves, really. So that anywhere in Australia, and we're ambitious, we're hoping the world in a later point, anywhere in, uh, in Australia, 
therapists can just, if they have a VR headset, which are more and more affordable, about $500 now you can get one, mm. uh, they can download our software, download our training. Um, so you want to open source this? We want to make sure it's available. Yeah. yeah. So there'll be some model of um, how it, would you need to regulate in a way through the that, that, We're I looking guess, that's into that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think uh, because it will be, be available in about I think three to four years yeah. when we fully have this developed and tested, and um, so we are looking into how we could best do that. And so, how might this change sort of the mental health pathways of young people experiencing anxiety and related disorders when they hit that entry point of um, whether it's ED, whether it's psychiatry, whether it's psychology? Um, is this a first port of call potentially? Yeah, we hope that it's because it's so easy, yep. as it were, to start training and practicing things that are quite difficult uh, to practice in real life, especially if you're scared. And now you can just do it in a therapy room. Uh, that we make it much easier for people to start. And so the opposite, just to give the counterfactual, would be a, a patient comes in, a young person comes in, and um, you're talking about anxiety in a therapy environment, and you're basically asking that person to recount their, their story and where they were anxious. But obviously doing that doesn't give you insight into what's happening in the moment very well. No, because it's very hard for, for anybody. Yeah. To recall exactly what was happening, yes. especially when it's such an emotional experience. So we don't really know. There's a lot of recall bias in that. And now you can just really experience it together with the young person and explore that. And the reality is also that for um, ideally, as a therapist, if you don't have the virtuality, you want to go outside with them, practice with them. But there's no time for that, usually, no yeah. money. So you would talk, do talking therapy. You would explore it by talking and then give um, some practices that people can do within this between the sessions and usually people would report back like oh, I was too scared or it was too hard uh, in many ways which makes sense it's, we ask them to do the thing they fear most so for me I think that's where VR in this space comes into its own I mean particularly with distressed or pe young people facing challenges yeah. their recall is going to be quite off a lot of the fair time. Fair enough, yeah. Uh, which is totally fair enough and um, no blame whatsoever on the individual. It's, it's, the, it's the, the reality yeah. of being human yeah. and facing challenges. Um, and it sort of reminds me a little bit about um, some of the skewed um, data around um, diets and food diaries mm. as well. Oh, yeah. You know, people never recall properly. There's so many biases at play when you yeah. try and recall a situation. So yeah. that real-time access and ability to treat in the moment yeah. is very powerful. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes, fantastic. And so with this space, I mean, we're dealing in a space where I suppose there's a lot of um, stigma as well and misconceptions around psychosis, um, anxiety, um, people having hallucinations and paranoid thoughts. Unfortunately, I mean, yeah. yeah. So how do you work into that space as well? Because I suppose there's the clinical side, there's the trial side, but then there's also, um, I guess, the, the policy and, and the speaking about the work as well and, um, and that sort of key role that Origin plays in thought leadership there. Yeah, absolutely. And also just training younger generations and, and making the public aware of what is stigma and what is reality. Mm. And reality is that many of us have these experiences of hallucinations or paranoid thoughts sometimes. I think about 17 people, 70% of people uh, quite regularly have some form of hallucinations and just make make more clear that these are normal human experiences yep. but like depression or like anxiety disorders they can get a bit out of hand 
And so these, instead of hallucinations that you can easily ignore, like thinking someone calls your name or hearing your phone go off, well, it didn't go off, um, they can become much more pronounced or much more disruptive. And at that point, we want to help people um, at least not be scared of it. Huh? Because the first, because of all the stigma around psychosis and, and that it would come with violence, which is absolutely not true. There's been done research on mm. that a lot. We, people with psychosis are not more violent than, mm. any, than someone with social anxiety or depression yep. or anyone like that. Um, and just normalize these experiences as what they are. And um, they're learning how to manage them, like you would manage depression or anxiety as well. Is there a public education piece for the field as well as the general public around? I imagine some people would look at this and say, oh, look, it's just another AI kind of future tech thing that's yeah. not really, it's a gimmick, blah, blah, <laughs> blah. Do you face a bit of that and have to kind of have some, some Absolutely. Good responses ready. Yeah, but the thing is, and that is why we do have the good responses ready, yep, yep. is this is a field that's been um, we've been researched for 20, 30 years already. Yep. Uh, the public just wasn't aware of it. And it because the, the unavailability of the headsets, it was just doing in some university labs, but we have some solid, decent science behind this already. Yep. Yeah, yeah, no, it's fantastic. And I can see that, you know, the, the way the article in The Age where I found you was, was yeah. received very well, that people are really ready ready for this now. And it's, it's sort of, I think, was sort of saying before, it's come at quite the right time for where tech and society is at. Absolutely. Um, and I, I wonder, just sort of going off script a little bit, what you saw about the um, TGA um, pre- uh, registering for psilocybin and also MDMA therapies. Was that uh-huh. inter- interesting for you? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and yeah. something that there's also been a lot of research behind the scenes yeah. uh, as well, that we're still learning about how these mechanisms interact. And there's, you know, there's reasons to believe that they could be helpful um, so that's, that's being explored. And do you, um, I mean, obviously you're going very deep down the VR rabbit hole and that there's a lot of investment in that space. Do you use things like AI? Are you interested in the chat GPT revolution and sort of some of the other web three things that are happening? Yeah, I think it's not there yet. Mm. Um, and yeah. there are some challenges with that. And one of the big challenges is the bias we find in it. And that's something we've been finding in virtuality for quite a while. And for example, we use hand tracking instead of controllers. So it means you don't need the controllers to navigate in the VR. You can just use your hands. But it doesn't work as well if your skin is dark. And so we, oh, we make wow. sure the controllers still work as well for, so anybody can use our, our VR. Um, and the same with the virtual people. The, the sort of default package you buy are young Caucasian uh, uh, supermodels. Uh, which is no, nowhere near reality no. and anything else that is, you, you need to build, you need to buy, you need to create. So that's what our um, programmers are working on at the moment to make sure that it's sort of more realistic. Yep. Um, and that's the same with the, the, the chat, sort of the artificial intelligence that's been developing They that uses data from the web. And the data is biased. Yes. So before that would be... Technology is not good or bad. It's how you use it, but also what, what data do you put in and what are the algorithms that um, make it helpful or unhelpful. Um, that being said, I do think it could be very helpful. There are a lot of ways that we could, especially for a bit more simpler uh, interactions, and not, not too far future, we could use it, for example, for a bit of coaching. We are now at a point that we have very interactive live 
role-play virtuality in the lab or in the, the clinicians' uh, spaces. But we also want to uh, make sure it gets into people's homes because yeah. we know frequency is a big part of recovery. Mm. If you do it once a week, it's not as helpful if you can do it, uh, practice it five times a week. Yeah. So if could people could bring a VR headset home, practice it between sessions, that would be amazing. But you don't have the therapist there. And that, that's still something um, that is um, more preserved for the individual therapies. So how helpful would it be if there's like a good um, good programs, little yeah. uh, coach or little therapist? Well, maybe it's uh, Rose um, yeah. in an AI version, so you're automated. Yeah, and, you're and I can support people. Yeah, like, yeah. oh, you're doing great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that would be good. Yeah, that's amazing. So yeah. it's quite interesting applications and that must excite you very much about the future. Yes, yeah. I'm keeping keeping an eye on those developments for sure. So in terms of what would help take this program forward and what you're looking for, um, it sounds like you're looking for, for more young people. Always. <laughs> yeah, their input is so important. We couldn't do it without them. We couldn't make other things that we build as useful or as, as purposeful without them. So there are always projects going on. We're always looking for their input. If you are young people with lived experience, uh, you're so welcome to, to help in any of our projects. So people should get in touch with you and we'll, we'll do your details later. Is that okay? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah fantastic. So it's quite amazing. And, and one of the interesting challenges, I always like to um, cover challenges with research. Yeah. You came here in the last six months of Victorian COVID lockdown. Yes. I did. Worst timing. My hotel quarantine ended in the week that the zero COVID policy ended. So it was straight into lockdown. What a time to come here. And so what kind of spanner in the works did that throw into your research? Oh, yeah, that was not good. You can imagine the virtuality headsets they're put on your face, close to the nose, close to the mouth. So Mm. we already have not been able to use them since the pandemic started. Um, and that yeah, it was such a good moment. The first time we were able to put a headset on a person again. <laughs> uh, we have very strict um, hospital-grade cleaning policies. Yep. Uh, yeah, you can imagine. Yeah. But at least we're allowed to, so that's great. So you're in action now. And I always like to yeah. ask people who come from overseas. I mean, yeah. you know, so you're, you're from uh, the Netherlands, so, yeah. so Amsterdam? Uh, no, Amersfoort. Amersfoort, and whereabouts is that, is that? Right in the middle. Right in the middle, lovely. And so how many people are in uh, Amersfoort? Oh, 200,000 maybe. So you come to a, a, a bigger city in a, yes. a bigger country. How do you like Melbourne? What are your perceptions? I of? love Melbourne. Yeah. Yes. I feel so at home here. Yeah. Tell me about it. What's it like to be a, a newcomer, professional headhunter to come to Melbourne <laughs> and doing this great research? Yeah. I think Melbourne is a great city. Yep. It's People are super friendly. Uh, the, the, the climate is very good for me. It's, mm. It reminds me of maybe my holidays in Spain yep. or Italy when I was younger. Um, there are a lot of lot of amazing professionals here, so for the work for the work is it's amazing as well. Was it easy um, as a Dutch person to sort of slot into to Melbourne sort of social and cultural dynamics? I think so. I think one of the um, as a that of my cultural background from this, I'm very direct. Yes, and this is a thing that's quite known about the Dutch. Yes, that, and it's the, true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, and it's also something that um, that comes from a part of a uh, place of respect. And so I value your time. So I will be very straightforward with you in what I uh, hoping to get from a conversation, or I'm very used also to calling my professors by their first name. And in that way, I think Melbourne is a close match. Um, because I find people, they're friendly as well, but they're also quite direct and clear in communication. 
Um, and there's there's less of a hierarchy structure that you maybe would find in other countries, which is co- yeah close to that. I think it's a perfect match. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, I love direct communicators. I think it just, I mean, what you said sums up the importance of clear and direct communication, you know, not not, not dancing too much. Yeah, There's always yeah. a bit of a dance, but then yeah. we, we need to know. Kind we can of, have a friendly dance, yeah, friendly but then dance. we can't see the point. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. No, that's great. Um, that's fantastic. And so just to recap finally, um, the key cohorts you're working with are youth and how do you classify youth? Yeah. So that depends a bit per study. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the study will be more for uh, 15 to 25. Yep. Uh, but we also have some studies where we're looking more into the first episode of psychosis, which mm-hmm. also can be in um, a bit of later adolescence. So then we'll be looking for people about 35. Fantastic. Yeah. And um, the key conditions that you're treating? Uh, depends a bit on who you're asking. And personally, my, my work is very much for social recovery. Mm-hmm. So we're working with people with paranoid anxiety, people with lived experience of psychosis, want to recover socially. But also more people with bit social anxiety, agoraphobia, because they overlap as well. Fantastic! And look, this has been just f- wonderful conversation. Really excited to hear about all your work. How can people connect with you and learn more about what you're doing, and perhaps join the youth um, council or some of the opportunities you have there? Yeah, for sure. I think the easiest way is just find me on LinkedIn. Yep, that's usually a good way. I think mm-hmm. that's how you connect with me as well. Yep. Because uh, emails, they're just, there are too much of them. So, you know, sort through them <laughs> and, and actually um, find that match. That's, that's a bit harder. Find me on LinkedIn. Um, find Shona Lewis, my coworker on yep. LinkedIn. I'll, 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 she's uh, the one recruiting young people. Fantastic. And I have some, uh, some posts on it as well. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a wonderful chat. My, uh, my pleasure. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player and why not share it with a friend or two? If you want more from your Humans of Purpose experience, become a Humans of Purpose member today through our new platform, Supercast. All you need to do is hit the link in our show notes. If you have a message to share with our audience about your brand, products or services, we have a wide variety of paid promotional packages available. Please get in touch by hitting the link in our show notes.